Hello and welcome to Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. I'm Marian Clements and this podcast is part of an initiative I'm working on with Melissa Pitotti, which is hosted by the CHS Alliance. Our work looks at the intersections between mental health, people management and organisational culture in aid and development organisations. And to do that, we use the lens of care and compassion. Today, I'm talking with Imogen Wall, a frontline aid worker, therapist and mental health first aider, who is also the founder and lead administrator of the 50 Shades of Aid group, an independent aid worker support community on Facebook. In this conversation, we talk about how Imogen came to be a humanitarian and how she developed a deep interest in mental health in the sector, about the shift in the sector as it opens up to start to face and tackle these issues and the huge amount we can learn from existing practice in other sectors and professions. So hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm here today with Imogen Wall. She's an independent consultant working in the humanitarian aid sector. She's a mental health advocate and a specialist around well-being in the sector. And she's also a founder of the Fifty Shades of Aid Facebook group that you might know about. Um, so welcome, Imogen. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. It's great to be here. So um, I just wanted to ask you, first of all, just to share a little bit about how you come to be doing this work and, and having this, this interest in both humanitarian work and in mental health and well-being in the sector and beyond it, I know, as well. Yeah, well, um, like many, many of us, I think I was kind of an accidental humanitarian. It wasn't um, ever my aspiration. Um, I was a journalist for a long time. Uh, and then I spent a lot of time in Indonesia and long story short, when the tsunami came uh, in 2004 uh, and I got asked to go work on that response through some contacts at the UN, um, I couldn't really say no. So I took what was supposed to be kind of a six month adventure contract uh, to go and help out in a country that I love, ended up staying uh, 18 months. And then you know, 15 years later, I'm still working in the humanitarian sector so uh, frontline disasters have mostly been my thing and mostly with the mm. UN and um, so I've been through the full sort of roller coaster that I think so many aid workers have been through kind of being hurled into your first emergency and falling in love with the work but also gradually realizing the toll it takes mm. um, realizing that what I thought was just me for a long time actually turns out to be everybody else as well Mm -hmm. uh, then gradually doing some bit of homework around it and realizing what a phenomenally mentally unhealthy sector that we have okay. so coming back to the UK um, continuing to work as a consultant but also retraining as a therapist so I got my professional therapy qualification in 2017 um, didn't really want to see clients I don't see clients at the moment um, but I really love the teaching Mm -hmm. So I decided to get more involved in that and I'm a mental health first aid instructor and developing some online courses now for aid workers specifically uh, and sort of through all of that I um, Fifty Shades of Aid kind of I founded slash founded itself and very quickly became a space because I think one was sorely sorely missing in which people could say about all sorts of stuff in the sector this happened to me and someone else could say oh my god me too and a whole bunch of people really started to realize that they weren't alone so quite early on we started using that space to talk about mental health because I've always been very open about um, my issues I uh, have quite a long-standing history 
history with depression. I burnt out very badly in Haiti in 2010. Um, and that took me a year to recover from that. And by the time I realized I was long out of the UN, so there was no support available. And gradually I discovered that when I talked publicly about this stuff, we even just talked to mates about it, then there would be kind of be this silence and um, people would say, oh gosh, that sounds awful. And then a couple of, usually a few weeks later, <laughs> People would say, so, you know, you said you had a therapist and she was really good. Um, any chance of a number? <laughs> um, and people used to just, you know, I sort of became this person people went to. And it was purely because I was talking about it. It was really not very complicated because we didn't at that point have the kind of conversation that you've been starting and that um, has been going on with CHS. So this is four or five years ago. Um, and as a group, Fifty Shades lobbied really hard to try and get aid worker well-being on the agenda of the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016 mm. on the very simple basis that you can't possibly offer your best self to affected populations and people in need unless you've got support behind you, unless you are your best self. Um, so we invented the Be Well, Serve Well campaign um, and got absolutely nowhere. <laughs> no one at the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016 was interested um, but it's been really interesting to watch the watch the conversation grow and the space open up and more and more people realise um, yeah. that actually we do work in a very mentally unhealthy sector and we co-create that as well as it being um, created for us. Yeah. So that's sort of where I'm at now. I'm, I'm now teaching online, developing a series of courses, um, really simple mental health awareness practical stuff um, around COVID-19 for aid workers um, and finally it seems that the issue is getting some traction and people realizing that you can't send people into what is probably going to be the most complex emergency of our lives uh, without without some kind of support because you lose them they burn out apart from anything else it's really bad management yeah. so yeah so that's where I'm at at the moment but I've kind of followed my nose through all of it uh, so there's not really a, a master plan. <laughs> right, absolutely. I'm interested in a couple of things you said, particularly, um, first of all, just a bit about the World Humanitarian Summit and, and the fact that people weren't interested. I'm just interested in, I guess, um, how that manifested and uh, what you think's changed or shifted or, or, if, or if you've got any idea how that happened, you know, beyond following your nose, which is a perfectly reasonable strategy, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think what has started to shift, and you know, we're 20 years behind militaries, frankly, in this. At the time of the World Humanitarian Summit, the feedback I got was very much, you know, this is about affected people. We can't possibly make it about ourselves. And there's that is such a prevalent attitude in the aid sector that there's something kind of um, weak or selfish or egotistical about considering your own needs. Um, and that was really what what was said back to us. Um, but they got some media traction and a guy called Steve Dennis uh, won a court case against NRC for their failure to support him after he was kidnapped. And he was a really long standing field operator. No one could accuse him of being um, new or inexperienced. Um, so that helped. But gradually, I think I'd like to take some of the credit for Fifty Shades. I think that's really opened up the conversation space where people just fessed up to what was going on and realized it wasn't just them, as I said earlier. 
Um, and there's been a sort of greater and greater awareness, not just of um, the importance of mental health issues per se, from a sort of ethical point of view, but also from a business bottom line point of view. A lot of research here in the UK by people like Deloitte showing what organisations lose in terms of capacity, in terms of experienced staff, in terms of hours lost to stress if they don't take care of this. So the argument is pretty much unanswerable. Um, and there's a general tide of public conversation has really opened up around mental health. So that has really helped. But I still feel, you know, in age, we're still, we're still stuck in a very kind of macho mindset. And we're still stuck in um, a sense that this is a nice to have rather than an essential for quality delivery. Uh, and we're also, it tends to get very fluffy, the wellness concept. People just think it's basically going off and doing a bit of yoga. Um, mm -hmm. It tends to be quite feminized as well, which mm -hmm. is, um, neither of these things are particularly helpful because I mean, everything I teach is practical and absolutely grounded in, in science, in mm -hmm. um, well-founded research. Why breathing works to de-escalate stress and um, trigger the parasympathetic nervous system what the physiology of stress is what happens to your brain when you're super stressed for long periods of time and why that is so damaging in the medium and long term i mean it's all it's all absolutely factually scientifically based there's no fluff about it and yet as soon as you say kind of um well-being to to people they sort of just think oh go get out your yoga mat and it really mm. frustrates me Absolutely. And I think that a, a thing that I think about a lot is the way in which that, that, that sort of join that, that fluffy idea joins up also with this idea that, um, that somehow we must be focused on affected populations and because we're just here to kind of serve them, which of course people are, but somehow there's, there's a, there's a kind of dynamic in that that's also kind of quite, quite rooted in this, this kind of savior complex or whatever we want to call it yeah. and so actually anything that's about making sure you're in good shape making sure you're well and doing that in in, in like you say in a very practical and grounded and scientific way is still is still kind of there's still this idea that that's that's as you said an add-on or something that's kind of not um not essential to the work of trying to make make people's lives better and I think that there's something about that narrative that we have to change and um yeah I, I i i had another question that's like so given what you've learned over your own experience with all of this what what are the things like those basic grounded scientific things that you wish you'd known when you first started out as an aid worker as you said accidentally <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i just let's go back to your first point about what's so ridiculous about this attitude of ours that um you know it's somehow not oh it's not not done to care about ourselves yeah the bizarre thing is is that the phenomena you know the phenomena that manifests in aid workers the heightened depression heightened anxiety high levels of vicarious trauma all of this is absolutely well known and documented and well managed in pretty much every other emergency response sector mm. in in psychiatry uh in ambulance services in um uh in in paramedics in fire services um you know this this research that goes back years it's really well known i have a my, my partner's a mental health nurse you can't argue he's not frontline he spent years running psychiatric wards he is 
astounded at how mentally unhealthy our sector is and how we don't seem to grasp the basics of stuff that is well known in other first response professions. Mm -hmm. So this is, this, is, is, this is the bizarre thing and was the complete revelation for me. My first exposure to a different way of thinking was when I went to volunteer for the Samaritans mm -hmm. in New York, which is a suicide hotline um, in New York. And um, the training there, that was pretty much as frontline as you can get. I was talking all afternoon to people who were really acutely unwell on the phones. Um, is that self-care is absolutely a central part of your responsibility in that world. If you have a difficult conversation on the phone lines, it is your job to step back from that conversation and debrief before yeah. you go on to take on another vulnerable person. And not to do that, to carry on anyway and say, oh, I'm fine, is a dereliction of your responsibility. And again, when I did my therapy training and I'm a member of the British Association of Psychotherapists and Counselors here in the UK, it again is part of my ethical code of conduct to take care of myself and make sure that I am well equipped to work with vulnerable people. That's and that's I have to demonstrate that through having supervision. So I have to take my my therapy hours to other people. Um, and there's a minimum amount of supervision that I need to have per month or per client hours. Mm -hmm. It's really regulated. And again, it's hardwired in. These, you know, we're not different aid workers. No, we don't actually, we're not as special as we think we are. Yes, we deal with suffering people. There are lots of different professions that deal with suffering people and they are all recognizing and managing and hardwiring in responses to this challenge. And I don't understand why, why we think that it's different for us and why the cat and therefore that the, it's acceptable to have the casualty level that we have in mental health. So to go on to your, your question about what we can do, um, there's a very interesting balance here between what organizations can do and what individuals can do and an ongoing challenge with a lot of the mental health sort of general discourse is that it puts an awful lot of responsibility on the individual mm -hmm. and it seems the individual's job to to manage their stress levels and i can teach you you know why breathing works i can give you basic breathing exercises i can teach you cognitive reframing exercises that will help you um uh, i can talk a lot about how simply if you go into a situation of very acute stress uh, and one that takes away a lot of your standard coping mechanisms which is what most of us do when we deploy you're mm. going to have a reaction to that and that doesn't make you bad humanitarian that makes you a human being um, and I can talk you through why that's going to happen and what's going on um, I could do all of that but if you look at what is coming through from WHO last year the definition of burnout and what we're starting to understand you know there's lots of research also around if you ask aid workers what they find most stressful on, on deployment, hands down, what wins is, is organizational mismanagement. Uh, it is organizational failure to manage stress. And that, that's the danger of putting everything on the individual is it lets the organization off the hook. Mm -hmm. um, and the, you know, the, the um, WHO definition of burnout is very clear that it is mismanaged chronic stress in the workplace. And that mismanagement is the responsibility of organizations. So they need to be investing, investing in employee assistance programs. They need to be providing post-mission support. And that's not just a quick debrief because most of us don't actually, you know, the reaction tends to be delayed. So it's three to six months afterwards. They need to be providing appropriate incident response support. They need to have all that online and it needs to be stopped and donors need to fund it. And it needs to stop being seen as kind of a nice to have. So there's kind of, there's a lot you can do on an individual level, but there's also a lot that organizations need to take on. They can't just say, you know, start some 
start some um, mindfulness classes once a week after work and that ticks our duty of care box because it is a duty of care and the mental health thing needs to be understood as a duty of care responsibility particularly also for national staff who usually get absolutely the worst end of this particular stick yeah i was just about to to bring that in actually because one of the things we found in our mapping through the initiative at chs alliance is that there's this this inequity in the provision of what is there which you know is often not good enough and not fit for purpose but but also very often you know there's more provision for so-called international staff than national staff and so on and that i think is a real kind of glaring inequity and something that we really need to challenge um, and there seems to be very few organisations that have really have really taken that on, on board and also thought about that provision being appropriate culturally, linguistically, and all the things yeah. that, that, that 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 would entail, right? Yeah, all that all that is absolutely <laughs> true. Um, it is a very fundamentally different experience being in a, being working for an international organisation if you're a national of the country concerned. Um, and particularly if you're doing a lot of the community engagement side i've interviewed a lot i work community engagement was my technical field when um i was working on frontline responses uh, and i've talked to an awful lot of national staff who run the community engagement um, and if you ask them what they need to support them in their work they all say they say conflict resolution training yeah. so they can manage awkward engagement with their fellow citizens um, uh, and often uh, their own community members, um, and 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 they want they want support. The turnover among national staff working community engagement is tends to be absolutely crazy because we just sort of assume that because they're local, they can they can cope, um, and they don't need support because they've got their families there. It's really odd. It's really odd. There's no attempt to understand the very different stresses. Um, you know the kind of judgment or ostracization that can come on some people or conversely the kind of pressure because they're now seen as the provider for huge numbers of people Um, you know the pressures on women who have to come into a workplace which may not be um, a done thing you know that they're stepping Mm -hmm. outside what is culturally acceptable and just simply going into work Um, you know or being you know the what it means to them to be sent on field missions it's just there's not even any attempt to understand the different dynamics um, and yet the very very little research that exists in international staff shows that they are much much high risk and actually this is where my interest in mental health started because when I was working in Ache with absolutely no training in this stuff at all I was managing people who'd lost entire families to the tsunami who are our workforce I had a staff member who's pregnant wife had been killed pregnant with their first child um and you know all their behavior changed as we got close to the anniversary of the tsunami of course it did there's no organizational um recognition of that at all it's down to us as individual line managers so uh, this is something that's been very close to my heart for a really long time because i think of my colleagues my staff back in Ache and what they were coping with and how the organization the organization thought it was fine to pay them two three weeks late stuff like that just was I mean, a lot of the stuff, you know, providing mental health support to national staff, some of it comes down to, you know, can they access healthcare? Can they access therapy? Can they access, a lot of it just comes down to actually treating them like human beings, pay them on time, give them benefits, give them support, make sure that you understand their needs and that there's, you know, there's separate transport for women or whatever they need. 
that's yeah. that's because that's what causes the stress and that's where the organization is responsible for creating the stress not the not the context not the emergency it's the organizational management that really creates the stress and that is extra triply true for national staff yeah it's a really interesting thing i think because i think that that's something that i i hear a lot in in the kind of resistance to this is like it's kind of, is very much focused on it you know the stress being in the in the context and actually like as you say all the all the evidence that we find actually says actually you know the way organizations deal with it is actually a big factor if not the, the most critical factor yeah um and i and i think it, it comes down to you know yeah, the stuff that you've rightly said about we just haven't conceived of this work basically as for want of a better word, kind of frontline work where workers need support to cope with their work. And, 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 and I've been thinking for a while now that why don't we have a culture of supervision or something similar? Why, do, why is that not a kind of prerequisite or, or you know, minimum standard in, in the aid and humanitarian sector in the way that it is, as you said, in many others? And I think, you know, it comes down to the way we've conceived of our work in, in some way as, as not being... I don't know, not being that or not needing that for some reason that, you know, I think that's very much part of what we want to challenge with our initiative. I'm yeah, and it's a whole sector as well, which is difficult. I mean, if you look at there's, uh, the American military is quite an interesting case study in this regard, actually. And, um, you know, the real understanding um, and of what being in conflict does to people mm. um, only really coming to light post Vietnam because the Vietnam vets organized themselves into they called them rap groups groups where they met and talked about their experiences right. and started to connect up that all of them were going through these weird post mission um, very specific symptoms and they were symptoms and that was what led eventually to the identification and definition of PTSD in 1980 but they were dealing with one organization the US military um, in one country and we've got a sector it's so fragmented so we work for different organizations um, when we finish our missions we tend to leave and go back to our home countries and quite a lot of us like me leave the organizations altogether so i think that is really really not helped us it's really really fragmented and there isn't space to gather and that's one of the reasons i think 50 shades took off i never intended 50 shades to be a global network it was me and a few friends to start with but you know we had 800 people joining in a week because that space to network and connect with and share experiences across organizations and across missions did not exist. Yeah. Uh, and it's very imperfect in many ways, 50 shades, but it's, it's kind of been the best we've had. So that space has not existed. Um, and that is a real problem. I think that there's no, there's no kind of, and there's, we're outside or, you know, or subject to multiple country jurisdictions so due to care responsibilities are really hard to enforce when you know your contract's french because um, your organization's french you're american but you're deployed in guinea bissau that's right. a really complicated legal setup so in terms of identifying legal responsibility for duty of care that's very difficult yeah 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 for sure there are definitely challenges i wonder if um in, 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 I know that in the, in the recent weeks you've been working with UK-based responders um, and providing training as, as they respond to COVID. And I wonder if you think, like thinking about the last few months and your, your experience of doing that work, whether there are opportunities in this current crisis, in the, in the pandemic, 
for us to kind of push the needle on this stuff in the sector um, more widely. I hope so. I mean, it seems to be, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic about that. And I think now is the moment to really push actually, because um, you're seeing the, the, the UN, certainly the system really start to engage with mental health as a concept. And most of it is with regard to affected populations. Mm. Um, but uh, you cannot talk about a response like this, particularly for frontline responders without, uh, without actually getting into um, the psychological challenges because they're so integral to the work. And it's very, I think we're building a lot on what came out of Ebola mm -hmm. um, and understanding from medics, particularly what was traumatic. And I use that word very carefully, traumatic mm -hmm. um, for them and for the people around them. Um, we understand a lot more about st where the stigmatization that occurs and the marginalization that occurs and how fundamentally unhelpful that is to securing the result that we're looking for. I think that probably in this, in this emergency is unusual in that the, um, the capacity, you know, the mental health of the people responding um, and their capacity to continuing, continue functioning over a long period of time is essential to delivery of a successful response to the epidemic. And I think that's kind of understood in this emergency better than it has been. Plus there's a lot of recognition of, of the mental health costs around all the secondary impacts around loss, for, you know, for, uh, for other affected populations, for loss of work, um, violence against women, which has obviously gone through the roof in lots of countries. So there's sort of starting to be a recognition on lots of levels that it is, an integral part of the consequence of a pandemic, but also that the mental health of the people responding is really critical. And certainly here in the UK, the NHS has been taking it a lot more seriously than they have in the past, um, mm -hmm. providing what they call psychological PPE. So mm -hmm. it's part of the briefing. Again, this is the we, we sort of this this idea that there's no way to do this is utter nonsense. There's, there's so many models developed um, in different sectors for pre-deployment pre briefing, support um, during, a, during um, a crisis, post-mission support. You know, again, it's all there. The militaries have done all the legwork for us, so have, so have um, a lot of the medics. Um, and that conversation is really, really happening. And that's really good to hear. But we need to stop this kind of aid worker exceptionalism thing Mm -hmm. um, and start to look not just at um, the fact that we're subject to the same pressures, but also that there's plenty of interesting um, and proven and cost effective and all the rest of it, the stuff that actually matters to organisations. There's models are there. You know, they're not, yeah. it's not actually as complicated as and overwhelming as people think it is. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I really would encourage people to maybe we can share some some stuff in the show notes for this, but would encourage people to look at examples in other sectors, actually, because I think on this, for sure, it often feels like we're, as you've said, um, behind the curve in some ways. So um, thank you so much, Imogen, for taking the time to talk with me today. I've really enjoyed it. And um, I, uh, and, uh, I hope people have found what you've shared useful. I certainly um, feel like there are opportunities in the current moment and also like, um, like there's, many, there's many ways in which the sector can improve. So thanks so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Mary Ann Clements in conversation with Imogen Paul, and this is Embodying Change 
a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. The show was edited by Ziada Abade. If you enjoyed this show, please do share it. And if you're an iTunes user and are listening there, please do leave us a review as it helps others to find our show. We'll be back next week with another show exploring cultivating care and compassion in aid and development.